Good morning, church. Well, hey, before we get to open up God's Word together and dive in, I just want to let you know about something that I absolutely love about this church, which is that our goal and mission at this church is not just to show up and do church, but to actually have the love of Jesus pour out of us in tangible ways. And I just want to say thank you to all of you that do that in so many different ways. And if you're looking for a way to do that, just to be loved to someone, to invest in our community, to help feed those who, who are struggling with food. I just want to make sure you know that our food pantry here at Eric Quarter Rock Church is absolutely amazing. Daily Bread Food Pantry does things all throughout the month, and we also have a food giveaway on Saturdays now called the Bread Basket, which is absolutely incredible. And I just want to let you know throughout the, this fall, we're going to be gearing up for winter by collecting coats and canned goods. And another thing, it's a really easy thing, probably a lot of you have just sitting around right now, is egg cartons. Egg cartons would be incredibly helpful to our food ministry right now. So I just want to make sure you guys know about that. That's just three easy ways just to pour in and invest in people in our community. Love you guys so much and appreciate all you guys do. So for those of you who haven't met me before, my name's Tim, and I am just so excited to open up God's Word with you today. We've been in this series now called Family Matters. The reason why we called it that is because we believe that the matters of your family matter to God. We believe that what happens in your family matters to God, that God cares about your family, whether you're single, whether you have a thousand kids, whether you have one kid, whatever that is, God cares about your family no matter what it looks like. And so we've been examining what it means to be a family that's centered on Jesus. In week one, we talked about the fact that there is a current, if you will, a series of forces in our culture that are kind of working against your family, kind of pulling us away from what God has intended us to be. And we talked about the fact that we're not called to just swim against the current or do the opposite of culture, but in fact we're called to step out of the current and center our families on the rock of Jesus. And so then in week two we asked the question, actually Pastor Christian asked the question, what does it look like to truly have your family centered on Jesus? And he did an incredible and amazing job. And at the end of that, he asked, asked if we would take cards and write out something that maybe we felt like was causing us not to be centered on Jesus in our family. And I'll tell you what, as I read those, my heart was just overwhelmed. I loved the fact that so many of you were taking those things and bringing them to Jesus. And I was just... Such an honor to pray over those, and we're continuing to pray over those, and we just love to see what God is doing in your families. And then last week, we got to ask the question, how do we parent our children well to leave a legacy? And it was a lot of fun getting to dive in when that was you asking the questions of how do we teach our kids what's important? How do we model to our kids what's important? And ultimately, how do we pray for our kids? And actually, next week, we're going to get to dive into that more, asking the question of what does it look like to really pray for our families. But today, I want to talk about something that I think is incredibly important in our families. It's the question of identity. I want to ask you, how many of you that are married had kind of an awkward moment with your in-laws where they started asking some serious questions to really get to know you? Anybody have those conversations where they're like, hey, what about this? What about that? You, you know, for me, I had one of those with my amazing in-laws when I was still dating my now wife, Bridget. I remember the moment where they came to me and they said, listen, you know, Tim, I said, we, we like you. You seem like a nice guy. You, you seem great, but uh, there, there, there's this thing. We, we, see, we, 
we, we know kind of your past history a little bit. And, and we know kind of where you grew up, grew up down in Texas a little bit. And, and we, we just got to ask, okay, no offense, we just got to ask. See, you know, our families are really big uh, Minnesota Vikings fans, and, and we just got to ask you, are you a Dallas Cowboys fan? And I said, listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I will not lie to you. There was a period in middle school where I experimented a little bit, but I repented, and I'm a born-again Kansas City Chiefs fan. And they said, okay, we can live with that. Fine, fine. It's okay. It's okay. You know, it's interesting, in every family, we have things that we hold as important, certain identities that we hold as incredibly important. Sometimes they're more in jest than serious, but some of them are incredibly serious to us. Like things like, well, in this family, we are blank, right? In this family, we're, we're white collar. We, we, don't, we work in office jobs. Or in this family, we don't sit in offices. We get our hands dirty. Maybe in this family we're Republicans, in this family we're Democrats, in this family we're Lutherans, in this family we're Catholics, whatever that is. Every family has identities and things that they hold incredibly important. A series of values and ways that they identify themselves they hold as most important. Some of you may grow up in a family where the worst thing you could possibly do was show weakness. Man, we don't show weakness, man. If we're men, we're men, right? Maybe in in another family, for you, what you learned growing up was the worst thing you could do was to be rude or unkind to people. Maybe some of you, the worst thing you could do was drive a Prius. You know, there's just so many different things. We all grew up in families that had a series of values and identities. And some of them, as we grew up, we realized weren't actually that important. We started to realize what the most important identities in our family. For instance, you can always tell what the most important identity in your family is by looking at what things are are set aside in place of others. Like, for instance, maybe many of you grew up in a family that said, man, money, money's important. But, you know, so's family. Being a family person and, and making enough money to take care of your family is incredibly important. But then, of course, you could tell which identity was most important when an opportunity to give up family and get more money came about. In our lives, the identity that we're truly centered on as a family is is the one that we're not ever willing to give up. That we're willing to put other things aside in place of that. And the reason I bring all this up is because our identity as a family, the values that we hold are incredibly important today. And I want to dive into God's plan for our identity God's plan for what's most important in our life. And I want to look at Galatians chapter 2. Starting in the 19th verse, I want, to write some, I want to read some words that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He says, For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. See, I believe that in our world today, everything is connected to the question of who am I? Why am I? For what reason am I here? See, we live in a world 
where I find it, it is increasingly more evident that people are struggling with the question of identity. That people are struggling, how do I identify myself? Who am I? Who do I want to be? Which is crazy because we also live in a world that has so many more ways for us to identify ourselves. We have so many different ways to to have our own identity, to be your own self, to have individuality, yet we are finding that more and more people are struggling with the idea of what does it mean to truly have an identity? Who am I? What am I called to be? What am I here for? Despite the fact that we have millions and millions of more ways, and people are searching in so many different ways to have identity. And in our world, there's so many more options for things that are coming about each and every day. And some of them are great things. Some of them are things that don't match up with the biblical worldview. We see the LGBTQ keeps adding letters, it seems like, every now and then. Because there's more and more ways to identify yourself, more and more ways to look. We'll look at the areas of gender, relationships, love. There's so many different things that it seems like there's another option, another way of expressing yourself is coming out each and every day. And sometimes it gets to a place of almost hyper-individuality. Like being yourself or living something unique or different than everyone else is almost becoming something that's praised above everything else. And the problem is, it's getting to a place where this culture of hyper-individuality is starting to wash up and grind against the core tenets and the immovable foundations of our faith, of what the Bible says. And I want to be clear, I think I said this in week one, but my job is not to torpedo bad ideas. It's not to call out all the emperors with no clothes, although I think there's a time for that, and sometimes that can be tempting. But instead, what I want to do today is ask the question, of what does it really mean to have identity in Christ and go from there. See, in the in the book of Galatians, when Paul is writing these words, if you ever read the book of Galatians, I, I just tell you, if you've never read it before, it's not necessarily a um, heartwarming book. It, it's not a love letter from Paul. It's actually got some of the worst uh, attacks that Paul has ever said. I shouldn't say attacks, but he is, is some of the most pointed words that Paul writes. In fact, I'll, I'll read you some of them. He says this, I am astonished. That's just a great way to start off a letter. You're like, what's he astonished by? How great we're doing? No, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. See, in this moment that Paul is writing, the people in Galatia are being sort of courted by another gospel by other ideas. And in fact, a lot of what Paul writes, the people that he's writing to, these churches that he planted, are being taken away by one of two different things. One would be a a sort of legalism. It's really the influence of the Jewish religion coming in and saying, listen, now you need to live by the law, which is what Paul's writing about. I died to the law. If the law could have saved me, then Christ didn't need to come. It's only Christ. It's grace. And then there's another group 
that kind of have this idea that, well, okay, then we're under grace. Let's do whatever we want to. And other letters he's writing to them going, no, 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 no. You still need to live righteously. You still need to live holy. Your bodies are not your own. So live as if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, as if you're the temple of God. But now, in, in today's day, I think there's uh, some very similar things happening in our world, some false gospels. Kind of a, another religion that I, I, I see going about, and bear with me here. But th- there's another religion that I see coming about in today's world. You know, it, statistically, Christianity still has a large portion of the world, but as, follow, as far as followers of Jesus in our country today, I think that number is getting less and less in many ways. I would contend that really the largest religion in Western culture is something I would call secularism. Actually, another word for it would be secular humanism. It's a common philosophy that kind of came out of the Enlightenment period, but still continues today. It's basically the idea that we as people can create our own identity. We kind of become our own gods, if you will. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about this, about a group of people that their, their mind is set on earthly things, and their, he says their God is their stomach. His, their God is their own desires. And in our world today, really, if you think about it, secularism has kind of created its own religion. Like, like if you look at the idea of political correctness or the idea of going with the flow in our world today, it's very interesting. It's, it's almost like culture has kind of created their own gods, their own teachings on right and wrong, their own ideologies, their own power structures, their own authoritative voices and prophets who speak into the things of the day, their own promises of utopia in the world, promises of, of, of heaven, if you will. If we'd all just get along or we'd all just do these things, their own doomsday prophecies about things that will happen if we don't listen. In a lot of ways, I would say that secularism is the dominant religion of our world today with the two key ten- tenets of autonomy. You, know, you do you. And authenticity, stay true to you. You you do what you feel. You do what you think is best. It it comes down ultimately to this idea that your purpose comes from outside yourself versus you making your own purpose. Or should I say, secularism says you make your own purpose, but the gospel says your purpose comes from outside yourself. Your purpose and your identity come from God. And so today I want to examine this, that in, in our families, in, as individuals, what does it mean to have identity from God? And what are some of the biggest con- moments where we come into conflict with the culture of the world? Because the culture says, you find your identity this way, and God says, you find your identity over here. And so I want to look at some of these conflict points that come up. And the first one is this. The first one, when it comes to our identity, is the idea of us being creators versus us being created. Well, what I mean by that is the, the Bible says in Genesis 1 that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, I think it comes down to this, that the secular gospel preaches to make yourself in your own image. The Christian gospel says we are made in God's image. 
And really, I think it can be broken down, the difference between secularism and the gospel, is really broken down into a pretty simple illustration. It's the difference between dogs and cats, because everybody knows, I think we're on the same page, dogs are going to heaven, cats are going to hell, right? We're all, are we all there or not? Okay, maybe we're not. Sorry, sorry. But you know, it's kind of like this. A dog will ha- see a human and say, wow, you feed me. You take care of me. You, you make sure I get all the, the health and, and benefits that I need. You, you bandage my wounds when I'm hurt. You have shelter for me. You have a bed for me. Wow, my life must be for you. It must be to serve you. And a cat looks at a human and says, wow, you feed me. You take care of me. You provide a bed for me and shelter for me. You must work for me. (laughs) And I think that's a lot of how we view in our world is we see all the benefits and blessings that God does in our life. And sometimes we look at it and go, wow, Uh, you know, God must must be so amazing and incredible. He provide this for me. And other times we see God as kind of this. Well, thanks, God. I'll take that. Now do my own thing with it. See, when we look at the Bible, we realize that I've been created by God. I've been decided by God. Psalm 139 says I, that you created my inmost beings. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You ever look at your life and the things that you're able to do and say, God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You ever thought about your body? Sometimes we, we only think about certain parts of our body when they're not working. Amen? Amen? Like there's certain parts that you don't really think about until you suddenly need it. But sometimes I, I wake up and I'm like, man, I, I have not thought about this area of my body because it's hurting today. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking about it, right? And sometimes I think we just have to take a moment and just go, man, God, you've created something amazing in my body in the world around me. I also realize that I'm not an accident when I realize Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. As a human, I, I am created by God. I'm not an accident. My life has purpose and meaning. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The fact is, in our families and in our own lives, this idea of being created versus being creators is incredibly important because a lot of times we can look at it and we can say, well, yeah, I believe that. But how do we live our lives? Now, a lot of people will talk about this idea of being a, a self-made man or a self-made woman. Sometimes in our world, the way we talk about things is, man, I just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Sometimes we do that without even realizing that the way we live our lives is as if we are, as if we are the creators. We're the ones who run the show, and God can just kind of bless us or not if he feels like it. We don't realize that we would have nothing without God. Having a created mindset is to say, man, I am just blessed to have this breath in my lungs today. Anything that I'm able to do, God, I'm going to worship you for it, because the only reason I have today is because of you. 
It reminds me of the scientists that decided to have a creation contest with God. They said to God, listen, we think we can make a human being out of dirt better than you. Because the stuff we see, I mean, eh, not the best. So, they have this moment where they come to the contest. And they say, okay, God, let's go. We're going to have our, our human being creating contest. And we're going to see who can make the best human being out of dirt right now. And God says, okay, go ahead, go first. And so they reach down and they pick up a ball of dirt. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Get your own dirt. And you know, in the same way in our life, sometimes we, for, we, we forget that the very molecules that we have, the fact that we have DNA, the fact that we don't have an asteroid that's already blown up our planet by now. Like, have y'all ever, this is a tangent, but have y'all ever just studied astronomy and realized, I think, what was it, Neil deGrasse Tyson that said about the universe, he said that the universe is a scary and terrible place that every second it's trying to kill us. Like, you look at the world around us, and the fact that we even have a planet that's habitable is absolutely incredible. Like, the, the, the odds and statistics on that are amazing. The first thing we have to do to, to have the, the first moment where we come into conflict with our worldview and our identity is understanding, first and foremost, that we are created. We're not the creators. And in our families, it's important to look at what are we teaching to our kids? Are we teaching them that you are the creators? You manage your own destiny, or are we teaching them, listen, you are a child of God that's been created by Him with gifts that He wants to use. He wants to shape you and mold you into a person that is beyond our wildest dreams. Or are we teaching them, listen, you're the creators, or even worse, we're the creators. We're going to create you in our image, what we want you to be. The second thing that we have to look at in our own families is the conflict of being a worshiper versus being worshipped. Sometimes in our world, we get to a place where we can so often worship ourselves. We worship other human beings. We worship our achievements, our own fame, our own fortunes. We get to a place where the thing that we worship, the thing that we lift up, the thing that we praise, the thing that we celebrate the most is our own achievements. Or other people. We can get to a place where we worship celebrities, we worship sports, whatever it is. Where we get to a place where this is the thing that we hold highest in our life. In Psalms 1, I love this this psalm here. We've read it many times before in Psalm 1. But I think we miss a little something in there. So often we think of what God does for us in the terms of our own life. God does things for me. It's so great. The Lord is my shepherd. That's a great promise. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. I must be awesome if God's doing all that for me, right? But then he says this. He says, he guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Actually, all throughout Scripture, there's so many passages where it goes back to, and God did this, and He showed His love in this, for the glory of His name, for the sake of His name. Because the fact is, it's not about me. I'm not worthy of any worship. The Bible says over and over that it's about God and only God. In in 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. In Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the first one is, You shall have no other gods before me. 
And the reason for that, I think, is because it's because God is worthy of all worship, honor, and glory, and praise. But then on top of that, it's also because you and I can't handle worship. You and I can't handle being number one. Every time we try to be our own God in the world, it doesn't work out well. Every time I've tried to be God in my life, it's never ended well. In fact, when we can understand the fact that we've said this before, that it's not about me. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not about you. And when we can get to that place, there is so much freedom in that. Because first of all, it, it can be a bit jarring when we start to understand, hey, it's not about me. Like, it, it can be a bit jarring. Like, what do you mean it's not about me? Like, I, I grew up in the snowflake culture. You know, the, 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 my parents, you know, and, and the kind of the culture of the parents of that day, they told us, listen, you are special and amazing, just like everyone else. Because everyone else got told that. You're a special snowflake. And so sometimes we can get to the place where in Christianity, it's like we think of God, it, it's almost it, it's almost like we go to worship God, and it's like, well, why wouldn't God want to create someone so special and amazing like me? Like, of course, God was just lonely. He wanted to create me because I'm awesome. That's not true. God created me because he's awesome. God saved me because he's awesome. And when I can get to this place where I realize it's not about me, it might be a bit jarring at first, but there's actually a lot of freedom in it. Because so often I think I see Christians who fall and they mess up and they stumble. And their first thought is, oh, I let God down. As if God's in heaven going, oh, well, okay, Tim messed up today, so I guess the kingdom is done. Let's just forget about coming back. You know, Jesus, just stay up here because Tim messed it all up. As if somehow I was holding God up in the first place. See, when I realize that it's not about me, I can have so much freedom and understanding that it's not about me. So in the times of worship, it's not about me. In the times where I mess up and I need to repent, it's not about me. This is God's kingdom to begin with. In our families, what are we teaching our kids about who is truly to be worshipped? Are we modeling to them, man, God is the one we worship above all, or do we kind of go, listen, we're going to worship ourselves all week, we're going to worship our own feelings all week, and then once a week or maybe once a month, we'll go check in at church and sing some songs. Who do our kids truly see worshipped and lifted up in our families? The third, the third rub that we see quite often in God's view of identity versus our view of identity when we look at the Bible is the idea of being all right versus being all wrong. We, we live in a world that likes to kind of think that, man, we're, we're pretty much all right. Yeah, we're, like, we're, we're pretty okay. Okay, man, we got some things we got to work on, some selfishness and stuff. But, you know, overall, you know, I think we're all right. People are just naturally good. Whenever I hear people that, that think that, I'm like, gosh, have you ever worked in retail? You ever worked at like a, a fast food restaurant or any restaurant that involves people? Like, my goodness, I, I, sometimes I don't understand how people can think that. But, you know, the Bible says that we are all wrong. The Bible says we've all sinned, Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we've all messed up. Jeremiah 17, 9 has this beautiful, wonderful thing to say about us. He says, the heart, the human heart, as it says in other translations, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? What a nice thing to say. Man, 
No, you know, we cross-stitched a lot of verses on pillows when I was growing up. That one never made it. <laughs> See, oftentimes our world believes that we are basically good or we're capable of fixing ourselves on our own. And so often when we go then into parenting, we can be tempted to kind of have this view of parenting, this view of our families, where it's like, yeah, we're basically good, so we just got to tweak things, and we can somehow make ourselves into the people that God has called us to be. But see, so much of what we see in, in our world today is, is, it's not just a sin issue, really, it's a heart issue. Our hearts are sinful, our hearts are deceitful, our hearts are wicked. And the same thing for your kids. For those of you who have kids, your kids are naturally going to be wicked in their hearts. Your, your kids are naturally going to be foolish and not living according to wisdom and truth. It's just natural. And some of you might say, no, not my kids. And to you, I say, hey, congrats on your newborn. <laughs> really, really glad. Hope, hope everything's going well for you. Because, yeah, for those first few weeks, you're just like, you are perfect and amazing. And then after about, you know, three, four months, they start to have, you know, these little things that come out. And you're like, where does it come out? must be from your mother. It wasn't from me. All of a sudden, they start to have these things that come out of them that are not godly. They have selfishness. They have foolishness in their lives. And the problem is our job, for those of us who are parents, are not just to correct our children's behavior, but it's to shepherd their hearts to help their hearts to go after Jesus so that God can help to give them truth in their life, can help to correct them and know more about what it really means to have an identity in Him. Going back to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul wrote, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live for God. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, well then, Christ died for nothing. If, if we could just follow the law and be okay on our own, then and Jesus didn't need to come. In the same way in our own life, in our own family, sometimes it's like we believe that the law, whether it's the law of the Bible or it's the law of our own hearts, the laws that we set up, are somehow going to save our kids. Like, man, we, you know, if we can just get them to pick up their room, that'll be the thing. If they can just be people who are orderly, if they can just be people who are living this exact way, like if we can just have the law so set up, that's what'll save our kids. But the problem is, I love what Paul Tripp writes in his book about parenting. He says, if law could save your child and Jesus didn't need to come. Paul writes it here. The fact is, no amount of rules in your house no amount of things that you set up, no amount of structure, no amount of parenting books, no amount of, of internships that you get for your kids, no amount of perfect jobs or perfect relationships can he ever save your kids, can ever save your family. The only thing, we've said it over and over again, that can save your family is Jesus. The only thing that can change your family and change the hearts of your family is Jesus. And we have to, to start by understanding and realizing that at our core, everything is wrong. Everything is naturally against Jesus. It takes giving everything to Jesus for anything to change. So how do we teach our kids? How do we teach our kids about life change? Do we teach them, well, it's just about habits, which habits are important, or it's just about 
just having some gumption doing it, or are we teaching our kids and our families and, 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 and the people around us, are we teaching them that the most important thing is coming to Jesus first? Are we teaching them about prayer? Are we teaching them about what worship really, really means? What are we teaching our kids about what's most important and about their identity? And finally, the, the final point on identity, where our identity rubs up against the cultures, it, it's in the way of affirming versus being loving. You know, we, when I was growing up, there was a lovely group of people that had a church about two hours from where I grew up called the Westboro Baptists. Anybody remember that name at all? They became kind of, they were more, pretty well known in the Midwest and the South because they would show up to places and they, they would often hold signs that were calling people to repentance, but they generally would focus on one particular group. It was generally the uh, homosexual population. They would hold these signs that would have some not so nice things on it. Like they'd say, you know, God hates you and, and you're going to hell, turn and burn. They became pretty famous for that, which I, 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 I agree with repentance. I agree with turning. I agree with understanding what things are not that we're living out are not according to the Bible. But the problem is it created this thing for the culture and the church where we started to kind of ask ourselves, okay, where are we going with this? Like, we know we hate sin, right? Like, yeah, we, okay, we're, we're against these things, but how are we going to express that? Because we don't like the way this is being expressed over here. We, we don't think that's the right way. So, so how do we do this then? And so it became this struggle because there were many people in these different cultures that had sins that were different than our sins, which is the problem sometimes, is that we, we often in the church will judge people for sinning differently than us. But then we get to this point where, where as, we, as the church kind of wrestled in America, we kind of came up with this phrase like, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner which in many ways can have some great truth to it. And there's many people I think that that really helped them to understand how it was to love my neighbor well while also not affirming what it is that maybe they believe. But the problem, of course, became that a lot of people like that idea, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, but they didn't start in their own life. Because that's the key. Anytime I'm going to apply something outside my home, i got to apply it in my home first. So i got to start by hating the sin in my own life before I start hating everybody else's sin. Because that's one of the things we love to do in the church is we love to, you know, talk about everybody else out there. You know, God, I think you need, we need to do something about all these sins that I don't struggle with. It's like the person that came to the pastor with a list of things. Here's the list of things that you need to talk about, pastor. These are the things that are going on in our community. And the pastor says, oh, well, great. I love what you... Which one of these do you struggle with? He's like, oh, I, don't, I don't struggle with any of those. Oh, great. Well, why don't you let me know which ones you struggle with so I can preach on those? And the guy's like, oh, no, it's okay. Really, it's fine. Because so often we like to, to point out, but also understand that there's a difference between affirming someone's lifestyle and truly being the love of Jesus to them. That we got to this point in culture where we kind of had tried so hard not to be like these other people or not to be too harsh in the way we said things. Or sometimes we can get to the other side where we can start to not stand on God's truth and stand on what his word says. You know, the, the secular prophet, if you will, Lady Gaga, penned an anthem that's been sung by many. goes, baby, I was, what, born this way. I was born this way, accept me. Accept me as I am, 
But Jesus, he doesn't do that. Jesus says, you must be born again except me. You know, there's an interesting moment in Scripture where Jesus is suddenly met with these people trying to trip him up to see what he's going to do. Because they know this guy's all about loving people. So what's he going to do in a moment where judgment needs to come? And they bring this woman who's been caught in adultery before Jesus. They throw her at his feet. And if you remember the story, Jesus says, you know, you're right. She should be stoned. I got an idea. Whoever has no sin, you throw the first stone. I, I love that moment because it's a moment we like to focus on that moment, right? It's a great moment. We like to focus on those moments of, you know, don't judge lest you are judged. Don't, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye before you remove the log from your right. But we forget what Jesus said to the woman. I mean, he didn't go, man, all those guys, they were a bunch of hypocrites, weren't they? Hey, you go, girlfriend. You go. Just go do you. Don't, don't listen to the haters. You just do what you think is best. He said, no. Okay, who's accusing you? He said, there, there's no one here. He said, okay. Go and sin no more. And that is the ultimate love of Jesus, the fact that he, he loved being around sinful people, but over and over, he never called them just to stay in the same place. I love the statement, Jesus loves you exactly where you're at, but he loves you too much to leave you there. And so in our families, we have to continue to ask ourselves, do we, are, are we more on the side of affirmation or more on the side of just being the love of Jesus to people? Because some people need to understand that, man, we, we need to be more loving. Like sometimes there's some people in the church that really just need some more compassion because the way they talk about some people that have lifestyles that are outside of the Bible, the way they talk about them is just disgusting. Like just, it, they just don't have any compassion for anyone else because once again, it's not sin they struggle with. So the names they call them, the thing, the way they, they refer to them, it's terrible. And it's like, man, if you met someone like that, would you even care if they were going to meet Jesus or not? Would you even care if they were following Jesus, or are you too, just too worried about calling them names and being disgusted by them? But on the other side, we can get to this place where we get so much affirmation, we're just all about affirming people's lifestyles, and oh, it's just all about love, where we get to the point where we have Christianity light. We have all, all the lovey-dovey stuff of Jesus, but none of the actual following Jesus stuff. See, the fact is, Jesus didn't come to affirm your lifestyle. Jesus came to save you from your lifestyle. Jesus didn't come to affirm your life. He came to change your life forever. And that's what happens when we accept Jesus. The fact is, the gospel is for everyone. All are welcome, but you must die to yourself. Jesus said in John 3, He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. It's like Paul wrote that we wrote in Galatians a moment ago. For it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I died to these other things in my life. I was crucified with Christ. And then we get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
Fact is, the gospel is good news for everyone. And as we teach our kids about what it means to be loving to a world around us that has lifestyles and ideas and things they're living out that aren't fitting with the gospel, the biggest thing to understand is that the gospel is for everyone. Man, whether you struggle with same-sex attraction, or you struggle with anger, or you struggle with lust, or you struggle with gossip, whatever it is, the gospel is for you. Jesus came to save us from our sinful selves. Jesus came to, to, to save us from the things that we're doing that's slowly killing us, no matter what it is. So often we want to focus on these big sins over here. The fact is, we are all sinful people. The gospel is about the fact that naturally, Tim is a messed up, screwed up person, and I can't make myself better. It's only Jesus It's only God's Holy Spirit working to sanctify me. And so in our families, what are we teaching our kids about love? The most important thing we can teach our kids is the gospel. That, yeah, those people have have some lifestyles different than what the Bible says. And what's really cool is Jesus died for them. Jesus came down so that if they will accept a relationship with him, he can change everything in their life. The same for you. So as you, as you teach your families and you walk in your families, continue to center them on this fact. That the gospel is good news for everyone, no matter what, including you and me. So today, as we bow our heads today, I want to just invite us to just take a moment to take stock of our lives and ask ourselves the question, who is our identity in? in our families, and in our own lives? Is our identity as being a follower of Jesus? Or is it doing what the world says? Do I see myself as someone who creates my own destiny? Or do I understand that my purpose comes from outside myself and it comes from God and God only? I want to invite you right now as as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I just want to just give you this moment just to just to repent with me if there's an area of your life that you think, man, I, I've not been living this out. As we say, God, we, we just repent of anything in our life that doesn't look like you. Any ways that we've allowed our identity to be formed by something other than you. God, would you just continue to break our hearts for what breaks yours? And God, if there's anyone in this place today who's never accepted your son as Lord of their life, who's never really made themselves a follower of Jesus by saying, God, I I repent of everything right now. I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. God, I I need you desperately. I believe that your son came down to die for me, and I I ask that he'd be Lord of my life. Would you take everything? For anyone who's prayed that prayer for the first time today, I'm just so excited for you, for what God's going to do in your life. For all of us, God, I just pray that You would continue to help us have our identities rooted in you and our families. Help us to teach our kids, teach our grandchildren, teach our nephews, our nieces, our brothers, our sisters, what it means to truly follow you and have identity found only in you. God, you are awesome, amazing, and incredible. We continue to worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.